This is a Federal News Network podcast. Electric cars, more windmills, more solar panels. Add it all up and the nation is facing a crisis in the electrical grid needing to support it all. That is, if you want 24 by 7 power. Researchers at the Pacific Northwest National Laboratory have been running simulations of a system called transactive power to see how a future grid might operate. Here with the details, Senior Technical Advisor, Dr. Hayden Reeve. Dr. Reeve, good to have you on. Thanks, Tom. Great to be here. And we hear a lot about with the new sources of power and the new demands on power, if every car had to be charged, it would have an effect on the electrical grid. So what are you trying to figure out here? So, yeah, at PNL, the Department of Energy has funded a study to look at really how we can get more flexibility out of existing loads and other assets on the grid. So you can think of this as your electric vehicle, your water heater, your pool pump, How do you make that flexible to charge at different times to manage the overall load on the grid? And so that gets to the idea of transactive, and you mean transactive between individual homes or owners of facilities and the electrical utility? Correct. And so this is done through a retail marketplace. So essentially, price signals are used as signals to coordinate these loads. So you could think of it as an incentive if you are an electric vehicle owner to charge your vehicle either during the middle of the day where there's lots of solar or overnight where there's low load. And this market is sort of continuously running to optimize and harmonize these loads along with the supply on the grid. Well, how does it work in a realistic scenario? Say, you know, the average person works nine to five, say, well, assuming people are going to work at some point. So they are driving from eight to nine. And so their car has to be charged by eight then wouldn't most people want to be charging overnight? And then so how could you have a transactive system if 80% of the people all want charging at the same time? So that's where the simulation comes in. So in the simulation, we modeled over 60,000 different customers on a region the size of Texas. And this allowed us to understand the behavior of different customers and put in these different constraints. So we ensure that everybody had their car charged or their homes cooled or heated to meet their preferences, but also make sure that these loads can be reduced versus a sort of a business as usual baseline. And in that, we saw peak load reductions of 10 to 15%. Got it. Tell us about the simulation. You say the size of Texas. Was it also like the layout and grid architecture of Texas or just the number of users? We based the simulation on the region of Texas because we consider it to be fairly representative of the nation as a whole, both in terms of the energy mix as well as the loads on the system. And so we didn't use the exact configuration of everything, but it did allow us to compare our results to the actual market prices and loads in Texas to give us confidence about the representation of the electric grid. Is one of the difficult variables to predict here, though, the cost of the source itself? Because nobody likes it anymore, but coal was really cheap to produce electricity, whereas some of the newfangled ways are more expensive, even though they produce less emissions. Is that part of what you had to bake into this to know what the price might be per kilowatt? Yeah, we were modeling the entire grid, including the economic cost structure, and we compared our baseline results with existing cost of operation across the U.S. And we were within about 10%. And then we were doing comparisons about the savings and then the source of savings. And so one of the big savings for getting more flexibility into the grid is you just don't have to build as much infrastructure. So you could think of this as getting us, you know, 10 to 15% closer to the end goal as far as required infrastructure. 
So infrastructure meaning not the generation capacity, but the distribution and load balancing and all those things the grid does. It's all of it. It's the generation capacity, transmission, distribution. In other words, we could, with the right systems and plans in place, the right policies, perhaps limit or reduce the future need for generating capacity? We can certainly reduce it by bringing that peak down. We're speaking with Dr. Hayden Reeve. He's a senior technical advisor to the Pacific Northwest National Laboratory. So what's the output of all of this work? Who can use it and how can they avail themselves of it? Yeah, so we produced a number of different reports. So the study had three main elements. It's this overall simulation, and we are making the key tools of that simulation available. It is sort of the economic model. And then we have a sort of a representative transactive design. And these kind of results are informing other practitioners in the space. And there's other work going on at PNNL and other places. So, for example, we've run a transactive system on our campus, and we're working with utilities to demonstrate this out in the field as well. So then this could also help utilities develop a different business model vis-a-vis their customers. Yeah, it's a way for them to coordinate the emerging number of distributed energy resources on the grid, whether that be solar, electric vehicles, more and more heat pumps, for example. And does it also take into account, say, more and more people putting solar roofs on their very houses, which I'm told can also put electricity back to the grid when it's sunny out and you're not home? Exactly. And so in the study, we looked at two different scenarios, one representative of today's sort of supply mix and one with a higher amount of renewables where we had 40% of the total generation coming from wind and solar. And would this also apply to operators of commercial facilities, factories, office buildings? You know, the federal government is looking for ever more value for its energy dollar for the millions and millions of square feet it operates, for example. Exactly. So we included commercial buildings and having the air conditioning be flexible. And there are other loads you could include that were outside the scope of the study. So for example, lots of industrial loads, commercial refrigeration is a good example of a flexible load where you can use the thermal mass that's a refrigeration system to move the load around. And do you think Americans should learn to like warm beer? The beauty of this is you can do this without affecting your preferences, right? You find the inherent thermal mass or flexibility in the system. And the other key aspect of our approach is the consumer is really in charge of setting their preferences. Do you want to have improved comfort or do you want to be a little bit flexible and save money? Some utilities have offered this type of service over the years. You can change, like you say, when you heat your hot water or when you run air conditioning and heating and so forth and maybe give up a little to gain a little money. But it's not been a widespread take-up, I guess, of these types of exchanges. Yeah, I think there's a number of proof points of sort of the ability and benefit of doing this. And I think there'll be a growing opportunity to do this sort of day in, day out as we get more variable generation on the grid, as well as the need for more flexibility to manage through sort of extreme events we're seeing in the grid as well. All right. Well, let's hope this all bears fruit. We're glad you're doing this project because I think a lot of people worry about the grid and we should be worried about it, shouldn't we? The grid powers critical infrastructure. So it's important that it be reliable. And I think there's a big opportunity to bring that demand flexibility. Traditionally, the grid has been sort of supply driven in terms of its operation. And now this is sort of 
bringing an additional dial to the table in terms of being able to get the demand more flexible to meet the needs. And are you an economist or an electrical engineer? I'm actually a mechanical engineer by background. So I came sort of out of the smart building side. But we have pulled together a team here at PNL of economists, power system engineers, building scientists, computer scientists to pull this together. Dr. Hayden Reeve is a senior technical advisor to the Pacific Northwest National Laboratory. Thanks so much for joining me. Excellent. Thank you. We'll post this interview along with a link to more information at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Plug into the Federal Drive by subscribing at Podcast One or wherever you get your shows. Hello and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. And today I'm thrilled to be joined by Melissa Bradley, the founder and managing partner at 1863 Ventures, an investment company focused on bridging entrepreneurship and racial equity and accelerating new majority entrepreneurs from high potential to high growth. Additionally, Melissa is co-founder of Venture Back Eureka, a community where small businesses gain unprecedented access to the expertise needed to grow their businesses and has more than 20 years of entrepreneurship, investment, and leadership experience. Melissa, welcome and thank you for being here. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Who is the first person that you remember looking up to as a leader and what was it about them that inspired you? So there are actually two people. Um, The first person personally was my mom. Uh, She was a single parent. And what I realized is that she was a leader of our household, but she was also the leader of our community. Um, She was a staunch advocate for children's rights in public schools, making sure that we got a quality education. She was a staunch advocate around rights for renters. Um, We were not in a financial position that we actually ever owned a home, uh, but she made sure that people who lived in various types of housing, we were in regular housing, the people who were in regular housing, public housing, she made sure that their rights were advocated for um, and really just always kind of looked out for, I'll, I'll use air quotes, the little guy while although we were the little guy. Uh, And then I would say she was a huge advocate of older folks. Um, As part of her job, she worked during the week uh, in a full-time job and then cleaned houses on the weekend, but also took care of elderly folks and a staunch advocate for elderly rights. Um, So that was probably the, the first leader. And then I would say the second leader, that really came about professionally was a woman named Crystal, Crystal Gaskins, uh, who actually ran a headhunting temporary firm that I ended up spending about a year at, but quickly realized that was not my calling. But in a world where you are constantly managing the powers that be that want to hire all these people and move people around and the folks who are sometimes in vulnerable positions and obviously seeking a job, she always managed to treat everyone with the, with the ultimate respect. And part of the business was actually um, managing hotels and getting service workers to show up. And that's a tough job, right, to try to motivate people who barely are getting paid enough under not great conditions. Um, and so she taught me three things. She taught me how to be a motivator and that recognizing leadership is not mandating, but motivating. She taught me that leadership is not just reporting up, but also reflecting and supporting those who may be underneath you from a hierarchical structure. And she also taught me that leadership was not about money, uh, but it was about producing positive outcomes for whoever your customers were. And if you did that, then obviously the money would come. 
How would you describe your leadership style and how has that developed over the years? I would describe it hashtag work in progress. Um, it, it has evolved over the years, I think, two ways. One, uh, the more people I've been exposed to in leadership positions have certainly helped me pivot and make adjustments. And then certainly as my leadership roles have elevated and probably as the more people I've been responsible for has elevated, uh, you know, certainly being managing partner and founder of 1863 Ventures, we manage a lot of people. We have actually tripled our staff this year. And so we went from three people to oh, actually 12 people plus and growing. Uh, and we went from a couple hundred members to almost 10,000 members. And that's a big deal. Um, I, so my leadership style has evolved in terms of more people that I have reporting to me. I think it's, I, I focus on autonomy. I focus, I'm, I'm very clear that my role is to help other people be successful. Uh, I do set very clear deadlines. I am try to do a good job of kind of projecting what is the overall mission and vision, what are the KPIs and OKRs that we need to hit. And then I feel like I need to get out the way. I need not be a micromanager. I need to recognize, particularly since COVID, that people have kids, they have lives, they have ways that they know how they perform best. And so we now have people who work for me all over the world. And as long as we made our deliverables, I don't need to know that you're sitting in a cubicle or sitting at your computer from nine to five. Um, and that's because I've been at those nine to five jobs where I literally had nothing to do, but I knew I was told I had to be in the office. Uh, and it just seemed like a complete waste of time. And so I'm really laser focused on outcomes and productivity and advancing the vision and mission and not on what does it look like? Because I think a successful work looks different for everyone. And then I would say more externally, as we now have grown to lots of members and we have a social media presence and I talk to people, I'm mindful that the, the probably the most important from an external uh, perspective on my leadership is that I am mindful that I am modeling not just for myself, but particularly for other leaders and particularly Black women and certainly gay black women. Uh, you know, there are not a lot of us. Um, you know, you mentioned that I'm a co-founder of Eureka. So I'm fortunate enough to be in the first 30 or so black women that have been supported through venture capital, which is a sad statistic, but for a different topic. And so I'm mindful that people are always watching me. And I would say that certainly as a black woman, people are always watching you, not always for the better and cheering you on, but waiting for you to make a mistake and slip up. And so I'm mindful that when I step into a room or I show up somewhere, I'm not just representing Melissa Bradley and my immediate family. I'm representing all of my members and potentially sending a single effect of what other people are going to expect as black women. And the final thing I would say that definitely has evolved since now that I'm over 50 uh, is that I feel a much greater freedom to say what's on my mind um, than I did before. And I, and I do that. I probably said what was on my mind before, but in a way that was reflective of my frustration and anger with the system. And now I say it with the, expect, with the level of calmness and the expectation that it's important that we are honest around what do Black communities experience, and to phrase it in a way not based on anger, but really using data. And so I would say I've consistently been a staunch advocate for Black and Brown communities, but has evolved from being very reactive and saying, well, don't do this and don't do that, to saying, 
Let me explain to you why I think it's important that we take this up and really letting the facts drive the discussion. Some of that probably comes from the fact that I've worked in two presidential administrations, and we all know that that just goes back and forth and oftentimes based on rhetoric and not fact. And having six kids in a world of social media, I think there's something, the the art of of conversation based on facts and data has devolved to uh, opinions and pundits. And and I think that's a challenge around leadership because your job is not... my mind to convince people, but to inform people and allow them to make decisions themselves. I, I saw you on a post uh, with a Washington Post um, uh, interview, and it, it, you were amazing. And it, it's interesting to listen to you describe what you just said, because I could see all of that reflected in how you responded there. And um, make one other quick uh, comment about as a company grows, WEPA is growing as well. And you are so spot on. We have, as, as leaders, we have to let go and trust those people that work for us and empower them to do their job and then let them roll. And that's not always easy. When you think about something that brings out the best in us, it usually involves helping someone else. By donating plasma at a Griffel Center, you can help save millions of lives and show your good side to the world. You'll join thousands of people who donate safely each week, so patients get the plasma-derived medicines they rely on. And you'll be rewarded up to $1,000 your first month. Learn more at grifflesplasma.com. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus, and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.